Nate Chance, thank you for coming on our podcast. Uh, you have an interesting background, Trivolta, uh, and everything that you're doing. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you're up to? Yeah, David, thanks for having me on. I'm originally from Canada, studied finance, got the CFA uh, right out of school in Canada. I worked in investment banking, private equity type roles for a couple of years and really just realized pretty quickly that though it's really interesting work, I didn't want to be a corporate drone for my whole life. And so that's in 2017, I embarked on the journey of entrepreneurship and was a part of a startup as a junior employee that scaled from three employees to 80 employees within a year, went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange. It was called Chiron Life Sciences. And then from that, um, late 2018, was able to co-found uh, basically a vehicle. It was kind of like an ETA vehicle. We, we bought out a German-based specialty wholesale pharma company with 25 employees, 40 million euros in revenue. Uh, we built out that business and we sold that in 2022. And then um, went to Yale for a year in their master's program. I uh, continued to build on my ETA knowledge with Professor AJ Wasserstein and some other people in the space and uh, kind of concurrently launched Trevolt Investments. So we're focused on kind of ETA oriented businesses. We're trying to build like a whole co company kind of strategy. Uh, I currently have a software company based in Florida under LOI. Literally by the end of this week, we're gonna decide if we move forward or not on that deal. And I'm looking at a couple other deals as well. So yeah, love entrepreneurship. Uh, love supporting the community of people that do non-traditional career paths. And I'm excited to be, to be on here today. Thanks for that. That's incredible. Just in like three years, uh, what you've done. Going back to the beginning, how do you go from three employees to 80 in the span of a year? What was that like and why did that happen? Yeah, so so that first startup I was a part of, I actually worked with my mentor, uh, who is a Toronto-based uh, gentleman. And he had this idea of expanding um, medical clinics and also CBD supplements and things like that throughout Latin America. So I was really just on the business development and finance side, and I was able to experience that firsthand. It wasn't, it wasn't me. I wasn't the main person behind it, but I was there from day one, uh, from the first seed round raise until the go public about 15 months later. Um, so for me, more so, it was just an education. I was able to see how you raise the money, how you inspire investors, how you execute on the ground and grow a team, um, which then I was able to apply in the next company uh, in late 20, 2018. Looking at what followed, it seems like that experience supercharged you. You were at the right place at the right time in the right industry with the right mentor and everything. And uh, would, you, would you agree? Was that a, a seminal moment for you? Yeah. What I would say for people that are kind of entering their career or in their career is just to take every opportunity you can. So for me, during my two-year analyst program at Macquarie, um, I just continually, even though I was working long hours at certain points, I would be going to conferences. I'd be going to little symposiums in Toronto. I'd be traveling to other cities, just trying to, to network and meet other people and see what they're working on. And at that point, I was a young, bright kid, a little bit naive, but I was just trying to add value any way I could. And so I built that mentorship by basically offering my my services, which is just research, modeling, due diligence. Um, I had some language ability. They were doing a lot of Latin America stuff. So I sp spoke a bit of Spanish. And then eventually they said, hey, we want to bring you on. So I just quit my job and, and joined them. So that's what I'd recommend to everyone is just kind of make your opportunities as much as you can as well. Did you know about search funds before you went to Yale? I didn't really know it that in depth. 
Uh, I'd heard about it a little bit through my research, but it was kind of funny when I actually realized there was a full ecosystem around this ETA space and search fund space, because that's essentially what we did in 20, pretty much we, we actually closed the acquisition of the German company in 2019, early 2019. Um, and we raised about 20 million Canadian uh, to buy out that business. And so we actually, that's essentially what we did. Um, and I think it's actually a better model than the startup model because scaling from three employees to 80 employees, though it sounds impressive, there's a lot of risk involved with that versus buying a business that's already stabilized and already has a management team in place. Um, I, I think honestly, that's a better model probably for most people. That's understandable. So what has been your experience so far with the cashing out phase? Um, well, first of all, I would say it wasn't a massive home run. We did we did pretty well, but I think for our original shareholders, our projections were a lot higher. And that was due partially to COVID. So we bought the business. I think we ended up closing it in mid-2019. And then I moved out to Germany. And then basically 2020 hit a couple months later. So just as we were starting to scale the business, um, and, and a lot of our, our business was related to regulatory, with the bee farm, which is essentially the FDA of, of Germany and, and Europe, essentially. Uh, they were not as um, open to having us sell new new drugs or uh, new, new, um, new distribution channels within Europe at that time because they were focused on the vaccine, which obviously was the more important priority. So, um, so to be honest, even before we get to the cash out phase, I think it's important to raise the idea that no matter how much money you make, it's a very painful process invariably on these deals. There's always going to be something unforeseen that can happen, whether COVID or otherwise. And, uh, and so it was not easy. <laughs> so yes, we, we built some capital and um, you know not as much as we had expected, but it was, it was a decent amount of capital out of that, um, that deal. Uh, it was not easy by any means versus a corporate job or something like that. But it was fun. No one says it's going to be easy, but still, it, you don't really appreciate quite uh, the, the challenge until you're in it, I think. Agreed. What, uh, what did you learn from that experience that you would say to others that, that are not there yet, aside from the fact that it is a challenge? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's very good to refer to people that have gone through it before, which I wish I had done more of. I was a little bit naive going in. Um, so it's great. Just like AJ Wasserstein, like he, he has all of his papers available for free on his Yale bio page, which we could put a link to in this, in the notes, perhaps, um, things like that, obviously listening to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like just all of the knowledge that's within this community is so helpful. Um, you know, just in a more, in a more tangible way, like what I would share of is just things like cash flow management or how to build a board or how to um, deal with employees. Like all of those simple things that have been tried and true by past practitioners in the space, I could have referred to, which, um, you know, myself and my business partner, we were essentially kind of going um, through trial and error for during that three-year period. And uh, I think that affected our results. I think we could have done better if we had been a little bit more rigorous with our approach to operations, to people management, um, to monitoring the business, et cetera. Yeah, you could always do better. I'd say you did a good job, but uh, yeah, it's good that you had the, um, you know, you're looking at it, how can I improve? Uh, so when you went to Yale, 
you saw search funds, you're like, wait a minute, this is what I was doing. This is perfect. And it seems like you kind of went all in. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Like, what was it like with you? Because now you're contributing to um, some papers, uh, some case studies with uh, AJ Wasserstein, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've done, we co-authored a paper, or I co-authored one with him on um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a psychological concept, but kind of applying that to the entrepreneurial journey. So we published that, I think, in August of this year. And we're working right now on two other case studies focused on franchise business models, which is a new area, I think, within ETA, but it's a growing area of interest of um, you know ETA practitioners buying out know, franchises. Uh, I'm actually helping two of my friends that are buying a business in Atlanta, where I live. Uh, they're about to close that in about a week or two. So yeah, um, basically, I-, I think the greatest aspect of Yale SOM is its ETA curriculum because they have four courses geared towards ETA. Uh, they have AJ Wasserstein, who has a ton of knowledge and connections in the space. And we're starting to build a community. I think during the during the, the year that I was um, in the program, uh, I was part of the launching of the ETA club. And uh, and yeah, so it's a, it's a great opportunity, I think, to learn a lot. Yeah, it's great. When uh, What is that paper out that you're on the franchises? So one of them is related to uh, a new franchise concept called, uh, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to share it actually, but there's a, a new franchise concept related to pet grooming and uh, highlighting the story of an MBA student, not from Yale, but from another school who basically was one of the, is, is one of the biggest franchisees of that new concept uh, based in the Southeast of the United States. And, um, and we are basically like kind of in the review process. So something I've learned is that you can write, you can, you know, we, we wrote, I, I basically wrote a 5,000 word uh, draft, but then, you know, through Yale Press, they gave us a lot of revisions. Um, basically, they want a lot more numbers in the actual uh, case study. I think with case studies versus um, case notes, they're a lot more um, rigorous in terms of making it very business oriented and quantitative. So essentially right now, I don't know. I, our goal was to actually release it before year end, but we got a bunch of revisions from Yale Press. So hopefully it's out in the next month or two. Yeah, I look forward to reading it. We're basically in that paper highlighting the the challenge or the, the choice between choosing an established franchise brand like a McDonald's or something like that versus joining a, a new emerging brand um, and the challenges and pros and cons of, of each. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I would be interested in, in reading that. So uh, you're busy. Um, Looking at uh, like your Trivolta, how did you come up with the name? Like, what does the name mean? I made it up about five years ago. That's always been my my vehicle that I would use to buy shares in the search vehicles that we'd done or the startup. Um, I'd come up with the name because I really like Greek and Roman history and culture, and so I tried to come come up with a name that sort of has an ancient feel to it. So try Volta. For me, Volta means power in whatever language you look at. If you think of voltage, for example, and then try, it comes down to some three key values that I have in terms of business. And so that's kind of how the name came together and I've kept with it. I guess a little bit of an overlap with your healthcare uh, experience. Uh, you're focused a lot on, or do you really have an interest in health, wellness, and longevity trends. Is that right? Could you talk a little bit about like your your interest, your experience, and and your purpose in that space? Yeah, so that's been something I've been passionate about for a very long time. 
Like I've always been an, an athlete. I was never like a world-class athlete, but I was just always interested in athletics, health and fitness. I had a YouTube channel during college focused on health and fitness and that helped me pay my rent through Google AdSense. And then once I did my finance gig for a couple of years, I was always looking for opportunities in that space. So with Chiron Life Sciences, with uh, Franchise Global Health, which was our, our search vehicle, um, we've always been touching the medical space to a certain degree. One of my biggest interest areas coming to Yale was to better understand the U.S. healthcare system, which is extremely complex and convoluted and inefficient, but it's a massive area of the economy. And I was trying to see if there's a way that we could create a company or some sort of search fund vehicle targeting that space. Um, I actually was part of the Yale Startup Practicum program with uh, Professor Kyle Jensen, who's really focused on startups at Yale. And I created a, a company called Salutas Health, and we were trying to explore business models related to longevity, biomarkers, diagnostic testing, and trying to make that more mainstream for Americans. Um, at the end of the day, we ended up not moving forward with it at this time, but I would love to create a model similar to that at some point in the future. I think it's a massive growth area business-wise, but also I think it's a big need for the population in general. Sounds like your logic is sound, health for the people. Um, so being Canadian, now living in the States, uh, if you could get out over your skis a little bit, like what are some of the pros and cons of the healthcare system in each country in your observation? Yeah, I mean, I think the U.S. Um, structure of having the um, the health, the private health insurance is there's so many like adverse consequences to that structure where the providers, the healthcare providers don't really have an incentive to be efficient and cost effective in their approach, while in Canada, obviously they do. Um, so I think the Canadian system is more efficient in that sense. For every dollar going in, you're going to get more output. At the same time, when you socialize healthcare, there's also challenges with that approach as well, just like communism versus capitalism. Um, and so from my perspective, I'm not trying to solve the, the political aspects of it. I would be interested in changing the culture of healthcare in some small way where people, folk, people insurance companies, providers focus more on prevention versus just dealing with you know, the ailments when they come up. And I think the biggest ailments to focus on would be sort of like the big four, right? Of like diabetes, heart disease, neurodegenerative diseases, and cancers. And I think the first two, diabetes and, and, and heart health, are the easiest to target through preventative healthcare. But the thing is, people need to start focusing on this from the 30s and 40s rather than waiting until they're in their 60s. And at that point, uh, there's too much uh, degeneration in their arteries or in their blood blood sensitive glucose sensitivity, uh, it's hard to reverse at that point. Are you familiar with functional health medicine? I am. Yes, I am. Because th that talks a lot about preventative, an, a preventative approach and makes a lot of sense. I interviewed a gentleman who's uh, known in that space and he has this um, concept of like micro moments of stillness um, or metaphysical meals, he calls them. Uh, just like little moments of peace throughout your day to, I guess, like, uh, like de-stress a little bit. Um, I was curious regarding like preventative, what are some of like the, the quick wins that you might recommend for people given your experience with health? Yeah, that's a good point you raise personally for me. So, so in terms of like 
the stress reduction aspects, which I think you're referring to there, or kind of finding moments of peace throughout the day, that has personally helped me a lot. So I went through a lot of stress on that last deal, or the last company I had mentioned. And during that time, especially during COVID, it was a very tough period for everyone. I actually hired a hypnotherapist. More so, I would call her a deep relaxation expert. She's actually based in Kelowna, BC. And we'd have Zoom calls every two weeks. And she would just help me to relax my mind and body over an, a one-hour Zoom session through breathing techniques and a little bit of guided meditation or hypnosis, she would call it. And that's really helped me a lot because I think my baseline stress level is much lower now because I've learned when I, when I get stressed, I know how to control my body a little bit more. That being said, I think I, what I would want to do with a venture, and I'd, be, I'd love to partner with anyone that is an expert in this on the technical side, is I would want to create um, some sort of service provider that could help quantify healthcare outcomes for, for prevention of disease. So kind of monitoring blood glucose sensitivity, triglyceride levels, um, biomarkers that correlate with stress levels. Because I think right now in terms of functional medicine, it is very helpful to do these exercises, for example, like whether physical exercise, mental health, uh, these meditative exercises, but we really don't know how effective they are on a quantifiable basis. So it can feel very woo-woo at times. And I want to kind of bridge the gap between the medical community, which is very focused on clinical proof and evidence, but then also bringing in these preventative and functional medicine concepts that we know work, trying to figure out a way to kind of put them together. I think that would be a really interesting challenge uh, for business people to try to focus on. Absolutely. In your opinion, what do you think has been the holdup with accepting mental health uh, to the same degree that we accept physical health? That's a tough question. Um, I think it's harder to measure mental health. There's so many aspects related to mental health. For example, depression, anxiety. Is it related to something within our biochemistry? Is it related to the way we're looking at things? Uh, there's such a subjective component to it versus something like diabetes, which you can just test their blood sugar levels and, and see that. And so, again, I think, I think, I think it's this is all related to the preventative healthcare aspect of things. It's like, can we find ways to measure some of these components? Like if someone's feeling depressed, could we kind of measure within a biomarker um, test through their blood or through their saliva or something like that, could we somehow be able to see that and then basically try to help them improve that area of their life and see that improve in the biomarkers as well? I think that would be really helpful if we could bridge that gap. Because right now it's very subjective. Are you depressed because you just have a victim, victim mentality or are you actually depressed because of a light, uh, an external thing, an internal thing? There's people that are wealthy that are depressed. There's people that are poor that are depressed. It's a virtuous or vicious cycle, depending on where you're coming at it from. Uh, you know, like if you're smiling, um, anyone who's going to smile at you in Georgia is probably going to smile back. Um, but if you're like, you know, um, uh, frowning, then anyone who's going to frown at you is probably frowning back. So, uh, you know, just scale that out. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting. There is this article, I believe, in MIT Technology Review that uh, kind of reframed uh, the, the the job of the brain, like rather than the body serving the brain, they said it, it's actually a new theory says that the brain's role is mainly to regulate the body. So a lot of these physical symptoms that you mentioned, I, I can't speak to diabetes, but a lot of them, 
you know, might stem or at least be delayed uh, by uh, better mental health. I agree 100%. So in the preventative sense, it does make sense. Even in the last two or three weeks, yeah. for whatever reason, most days that I'm waking up now, I'm getting this really deep pain in my middle upper back, deep inside in the muscle. And I don't think it's related to any injury related to a sport or anything like that. I think it's literally stress related. So I think I have to figure out the mental component. I could just take an ibuprofen because that helps. But really, I should probably be thinking what is what is actually causing this is probably maybe I'm traveling too much. I'm not sleeping well, drinking too much coffee, et cetera, et cetera. So we're always battling these things. And I think it's really important to just take stock and be like, how am I doing in terms of mental, physical health? Absolutely. And I, I would just touch on something you said. I, I could take an ibuprofen because it helps. It's almost like um, your oil light is beeping at you and that's annoying. So you turn it off with ibuprofen, I, I think. So it's like your body is like this amazing instrument and it's sensing the data in nature and you're like shutting off parts of it because it's inconvenient on the course that you're on. And it's like, well, maybe part of that overall concept of charting your course is listening to this instrument. Um, so there's a, a whole lot that like, uh, I think we're hopefully learning about that. For sure. hundred percent. Going back to what you touched on, um, you mentioned the Maslow's hierarchy of needs in entrepreneurship. That sounded really interesting. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I'd love to, um, unpack that. You know, one post that I made on LinkedIn, uh, recently that was a little bit controversial, what related to this, I'll tie it back. Uh, was the concept of if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to find freedom, or as I say, if you want to break the formula to a certain extent and design your own lifestyle, not have your lifestyle dictated to you by a corporation, right? Um, you have to be willing to be a loser in the short term to be a winner in the long term. And what I mean by that is jumping into entrepreneurship, as I've alluded to, and as AJ and I wrote in that paper, is an extremely disorienting and difficult experience in the short term. Essentially, what you're doing is you're going from the comforts of a corporate job, for example, which is usually fairly highly paid in the short term. And you're jumping into a situation where you're starting from the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if, for people that aren't familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's the physical needs that you need first, right? Like food and things like that. Yeah. This is every human organism. I'll just review it really quickly. There's safety needs, so everyone needs to feel safe, right? You keep going on throughout it. There's love and belonging, there's esteem, and then there's self-actualization. So there's sort of five different steps. And when you're when you're in a corporate job, you're kind of getting all four, if you're in a relatively good job, right away, right out of school. You follow your, you know, you get your your A's, your your B's or A's, you, you know, you do the interviews, you get the job. When you go into entrepreneurship, usually you're gonna start off just survival. Like when you do an ETA deal. You're usually in the first couple of months just figuring out how do I pay the debt back? How do I pay my employees on time? How do I figure out this business, right? And then from there, it's safety. So then it's really just like, can I do this consistently? Because you're running on a treadmill. Am I going to be able to keep retain these customers? Am I going to be able to grow the business? I've got the board on me, right? So it's like it, it, those, those first six to 12 months, you're literally just trying to get through those first two stages. And then eventually you might build love and belonging. You feel comfortable within your comfort company, your employees, you built a culture, You've, you maybe you're tied with the local community of wherever you're operating. And then, and then eventually, so this is, this is kind of the main crux of the paper. Eventually you might, if you're successful, you'll probably get to esteem. You're going to have steady cash flow. You're going to have a good salary. 
your equity interest in the business is going to be worth perhaps a couple million dollars. You might be even put in some magazines. You might be on some podcasts. People are going to say, oh, you're doing a great job. And you feel good about yourself. What we argued about in the paper, though, is that a lot of entrepreneurs within ETA or startups exit too soon. So they do all that. They go through that whole uh, evolution over, say, two, three, four, five years, right? Their equity value is pretty high. And then investors and the board will pressure them and say, hey, look, you could sell this thing. The investors are going to make 30% IRR. You're going to make a couple million bucks. Why don't we just sell this thing? And you can go on a beach and just relax all day or whatever, you know, or become an investor. And that's what most entrepreneurs do. But that last stage of self-actualization usually only occurs after year five, which is, which is more what AJ argued. I sold also after three or four years. And I personally wish sometimes that we had it because I think that after year three, four, five, you're starting to build a rhythm and it might actually be better to stay with that business. It's more meaningful um, in terms of self-actualization. So we talk about that in the paper. Uh, just some quick examples. You know, as you start to build an organization, you might feel self-actualization as you see some of your employees really just moving up in the company. You'll see the business kind of take on an identity of its own. Um, you're starting to feel sort of a legacy, a legacy impact that you're having within a community, within a sector. And it, not, it becomes less about the entrepreneur and more about the business succeeding on its own, which can be very impactful. It's almost like a child. Um, and, and so that's kind of some of the stuff we talked about in the paper. Sounds really interesting. Uh, perhaps we can link to that paper as well in the show notes. Is that on uh, AJ's site? It is on AJ's site as well. Yeah. Okay, great. So you mentioned uh, you, you plugged the name of your new podcast, and you also uh, have an interest in alternative education and media. And I see the two overlapping to an extent. Could you talk to us a little bit about um, how you gather information in the alternative sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I did a year of grad school at, at Yale. I took great courses, Not nothing bad to say about traditional education. Uh, particularly at like great institutions like like Yale or, or other great schools in the United States and Canada. But I actually realized during that year that there were many things that were not taught. And I was surprised by that. And many things that when we're looking, for example, at this software business we're trying to buy in the next week or so, many gaps that I need to learn to grow that business that Yale was not capable of teaching me. So I'll give you an example a big thing nowadays to grow a business, particularly in software, but just in general, is digital marketing. So it's doing paid ads. It's creating a, a sales process with sales development representatives, outbound sales, scraping contact info for people in that industry and reaching out through, through email campaigns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs that do that. And that's a really important skill set that they're focused on probably 25 or 30 percent of their time. And they don't teach that at all at Yale. And I thought that was a little bit disappointing, right? And so there's a lot of things now that because the world is changing so quickly that, that people need to supplement their education with other sources. And so for me, I refer a lot to certain YouTube channels. There's a guy named Alex Hormozzi who has a lot of great content on online marketing and sales processes. Acquisition.com. Yeah, acquisition.com. Um, but there's many more, and, and there's also a lot of paid coaching programs and masterminds that I've that I've paid into. 
over the past couple of years that have really taught me some of these more tangible skills that are required. Copywriting, how to hire salespeople, how to manage sales processes. How do you, how do, you do um, conferences, webinars, trade shows, branding? There's a lot of things on a tangible level that I think schools miss because when they made these curriculums a couple of decades ago, maybe these, these methods of customer acquisition didn't exist, but now they're so integral and important to be able to make a successful startup or business, in my opinion. So um, that's why I'm really passionate about the space. And within um, my podcast, Break the Formula, I want to highlight the stories of people that have broken the formula, created their own entrepreneurial or uh, creator venture, but then also at some point kind of build in education for people on some of these more cutting edge um, techniques or skill sets to help them open their mind and think about, okay, if I were to leave this, my job at, at this company, you know, some of the, the key skills they would need. Building a landing page, simple things like that, which you're doing with, with Horizon. Um, a lot of people don't know how to do that. Yeah, I, I look at, I don't know if this is a perfect analogy. I, I think I share your sentiment regarding uh, higher education. I have an admiration for it. I like the atmosphere of institutions. Of course, the, you know, people like AJ and uh, your colleagues as well there, your classmates. Uh, however, in the grand scheme of things, I look at it more as like a very um, specialized um, supplement to your diet, um, something that, that can help. Uh, and does help, but something that you wouldn't um, necessarily choose to eat for your your three meals a day. Um, you need to, I think, live it to contextualize it. It needs to integrate with your uh, diet of, you know, whatever <laughs> vegetables or whatever it is that you eat. Um, so it's like you know, like you mentioned, you do need to get out into the world, um, fail, try things. There's just so much coming out there, and to organize it and institutionalize it seems to be a little bit of a deviation from the chaotic iterations that nature is going through. I agree. And another thing too is, is the exorbitant cost. Not everyone can afford to pay uh, an institution like Yale $70,000 a year plus living costs, over 100,000 all in to get an education. And a lot of these online sources, they can provide you with very specific skills for as low as $20 on Udemy to maybe a, a thousand or couple thousand dollars on a sort of like a mastermind course or something like that. And you're going to build some really important skills. So the cost benefit as well for a lot of people makes sense to do that. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, um, given that, you know, you do have an MBA from Yale, but you're also um, involved in a lot of other uh, alternative uh, education uh, avenues. You, you mentioned Alex Harmozy. If people want to follow him on Twitter, go to acquisition.com. Uh, are there any like master classes or any like other YouTube channels that you might point people to that just if they have like five dollars in their pocket, how they can start leveling up in the entrepreneurial sense? I think it really depends what people are are trying to do, but there's a lot of different um, people on. I, I I could put a list together perhaps in the show notes and send that to you. Okay, um, it really yeah, depends what they're looking for. I think Alex Ramosi is great because he's just got a ton of content. It's all free, and just starting with that I think is great. He's an absolute machine. If you're trying to do online stuff. So you've got some uh, interesting personal like entrepreneurial experiences and you also do, uh, you've done a motorcycle tour, if, if that's correct. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So right out of college, I got a job offer at a couple of firms. Uh, that was September 2014 where I graduated uh, in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, people that know. 
And um, I was thinking to myself, so so I finished my classes that summer. It was in August. I finished my exams. And, I, and all the employees were saying, hey, we want you to start within the first week or two of September. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. So basically, I'm going from working my ass off at school. I had just done the CFA level one. And then I'm going to go right into working in a corporate job. They're not giving me any time off. I'm going to be studying for CFA level two. And I'm basically going to be spending my 20s, which are the best years of our lives, you know, in an office, which I wasn't so enthused by. Um, and so I made the decision to actually just reject those offers. And I kind of just went on a crazy trip. I flew to Santiago, Chile. Uh, that's the, the country with the easiest uh, ability to buy a vehicle um, through the government there. And I bought a motorcycle. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I had $10,000 Canadian. Um, that I'd saved up through internships. And I spent um, three months on the motorcycle, did almost 10,000 miles throughout Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, um, went to many different cities in that region of the world. And then I backpacked Colombia and Mexico, basically came back penniless six months later. But it was such an amazing experience. I would not take that back anyway. I think it was such a, a great experience. And I think the biggest thing I learned was that you can be independent, right, and and survive outside of the system, because that whole my my first twenty two years of life, I was in the system where everything was scheduled, and uh, I was just following along with whatever school or university or employer told me. And I realized that you can you can break free. Now the same the other point of it though is I lost you know I spent all my money, so I did have to come back to the formula and work nine to five to figure things out. So. You know, you need to make an income at some point and also create, create stability in life. But but yeah, it really taught me. I was like, wow, the world is a big place. There's a lot of stuff going on and I don't need to live in an office my whole life. Agreed. I see things as contradictions. So, for example, the world is big and small at the same time and we seek comfort, but we need adversity. Without adversity, we get miserable. Um, we create it ourselves. And so you need to get out there and challenge yourself, you know, be in the cold rain, climbing up a mountain, trying to figure out how am I going to come up with uh, gas in this situation or something, um, you know, a breakdown or whatever, and just negotiating when you can't speak the language. I remember this one time I was in Korea and my, my phone uh, died, like no battery. And I was like, oh, crap, like I've got to like think about how to translate this with my organic brain instead of like plugging in like a quick translation. Um, and it's like, but that's what it's all about. I mean, that's how we got here. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's amazing uh, that you did that. I, I think we could write a book uh, just about that alone. But uh, I guess if you can, is there any like standout kind of moment you want to highlight from that six months of bliss? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it wasn't all bliss. I mean, it was it was an amazing experience, just such an enriching experience to do that. Um, but certainly a lot of moments of, of loneliness or um, fear, right? I think. Some of my my most beautiful moments were just on the open road in rural Argentina, um, in the mountains, the Andes Mountains, between Chile, Argentina as well, uh, through the jungles of Brazil, through the coasts of Brazil and Uruguay, um, the falls of Iguazu. So a lot of the a lot of the more kind of lonesome areas where it's just myself and the bike, and stopping in little villages, very cultural villages in that area of the world, and just getting that time to reflect a lot. Um, and see things that I'd never seen before. I think those were some of the most beautiful moments. Did you speak Spanish before you went or did you pick it up on that trip? 
I did. So I, I studied it all through college and then did an exchange in Spain the year prior to going. And I, I went pretty intensively there. I built a good foundation, but really it was during the trip where I think I established my fluency and I've maintained that fluency almost 10 years later. So it was a great experience. That, that's the best way to learn a language for sure. I agree. Yeah. I think it's a bit of a, um, like a misdirection to think of language as a subject because it's not really something that you learn in a building. It's something you, you learn like by living in the environment where you don't have the foothold of your native tongue and you have to communicate and, and live it. I, I look at it almost as like an operating system or an, an app, let's say on an operating system. Um, I, I did Japan, uh, instead of, uh, you know, South America, but, um, I, I, I figured, okay, step one, I need to learn vocabulary. So I started to learn vocabulary and then I could translate my English thoughts. Great. Well, nobody understood me because that's not how it works. Like you've got to think like the local culture and the local humor and the local history and all this stuff. It's a whole, like I said, operating system. So that was a bit of a aha moment for me because they don't really, uh, at least I didn't receive that kind of understanding when I was uh, taking courses. Exactly. And I, I would say the same critique for business school itself. Like there's so much we do learn in business school, but really at the end of the day, it comes down to application. And one thing I was disappointed by during the business program was some of my colleagues, extremely smart people, extremely driven, impressive backgrounds. But I felt that they were just feeling that if they just took the classes, they would learn everything and and then they would get a great job out of school. But I felt they'd left something on the table in terms of let's apply, let's work on a venture, let's let's discuss some new ideas together and work on stuff. And I felt people were a little bit complacent, just being satisfied with just doing coursework and not not really applying. And I feel like um, it's through the application, even something simple like creating a landing page or creating a podcast or just doing something in the real world that's where we really learn. So I think that's where the world's going too. It seems that way. Yeah, from most people I speak to, they, they say something similar. Um, I felt like once I quote unquote graduated, that was really just the beginning. Uh, so commencement is a apt <laughs> uh, term, but I was curious what your thoughts were. Did, did you feel the same way? Like, yeah, I've got a Yale MBA, but this is really just the beginning. So I wanna to clarify too. So I only did one year at Yale. I technically have a year left. And the administration has told me I have five years to go back. But basically what happened was, is I said, hey, I want to I want to do deals. And being in New Haven is a little bit difficult to travel and find sellers and find deals. Um, so I said, hey, I want to I want to move to Atlanta and uh, and pursue this ETA stuff um, through Trivolta Investments. And so that's what I've been doing. So I'm still I'm still working with AJ on a couple of papers. I'm still connected to the school. But. I'm actually not enrolled this year uh, in the second year of the program. I'd assumed that uh, you'd graduated, so you're not actually qualified to talk on my podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. Um, though, you know, it's interesting, though. I, <laughs> I, I, my father is really disappointed that I took a year off because he really believes in education and he has an MBA and, and all this stuff, uh, you know, boomer, classic boomer stuff. But um, for me, like one thing I've realized is that at least from my experience talking to investors and sellers, most don't really care. Most don't really ask any questions. They know I did a year at Yale, which I did. And they just kind of take that as face value and don't, they don't ask any further questions. The fact that I only did one year versus two, at least so far has not impeded me in any way. 
I do intend on finishing that, but I would like to do a couple of deals first, uh, just because I think there's a lot of opportunities now with where the economy is at. But yeah, it's been interesting because I, I think an employer would care, perhaps. But in terms of entrepreneurship, I don't know if people really care. I'd say the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you're, I think you're doing the right thing. Um, it, I think it's a much more interesting story. Um, you're applying the learning. You're still connected to the school. I would, uh, you know, I'm just one person, so I probably have a bunch of blind spots. But I, I would, I would, I could make an argument that you're actually um, contributing to the school in a greater way, or at least a unique way, a valued way that um, you're actually giving back to your class. Like, hey, look at what one of our uh, classmates is doing now. They can learn from from your learnings because I mean, you're. It's it's really interesting. And I don't know if I can make it so concise, but I'll try to. Uh, like we mentioned earlier, you don't really know something until you're living it. So it's like one thing to read it or hear it, like entrepreneurship is hard, but once you're living it, you're like, oh, this is what they meant. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize, you know, there's that peak after this peak. Uh, but yet you're actually looking at it, you've got this like unconscious algorithm. So you're interpreting the information based on like presuppositions and all this other stuff. And so that's great. Like you're learning and you're iterating in a way that no one can imitate. But then other people are looking at your lessons and they're able to do stuff that you can't do. And that's the beauty of this whole like, you know, life experience. So I think um, what you're doing is very valuable to Yale. I, I do hope you kind of finish just because um, I don't know, like I admire like, you know, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, all these dropouts. Um, and it is cool. Like, you know, they got in, there's validation in the fact that they were um, admitted. Uh, and then they made the boss move of saying like, mic drop, I'm going to go start as unicorn. Um, but I do like the kind of like, you know, sucker for the walk into the sunset, live happily ever after, close the loop on the story, got my got my diploma. So anyway, I hope you finish, but I think you're doing the right thing. I do intend on finishing it. And, it, you know, kudos to Yale and the administration for being very open-minded related to helping, you know, MBAs pursue entrepreneurial dreams and entrepreneurial ventures. They've been very accommodative with me. They, they said, yeah, take, take a year off, two years off, you know, a number of years off if you need to. And come back after, we'll welcome you back. So I really appreciate them for being supportive. I just think that they're, they're supportive because they want people from SOM and I'm sure a lot of other programs, they want to see people doing entrepreneurship as well. And so I, th I think a lot of programs are actually supportive of entrepreneurs taking a risk, even after just the first year. Have you thought about a PhD in the future at all? I have thought about it. I'm trying to figure out what it would be in. Um, and, and how that would work. But I have thought about it because I do enjoy, enjoy writing and I enjoy sharing my thoughts with, with other younger people. And so, yeah, I don't know when, but that would be something of interest. Do you have any that you'd recommend? Not at this point. I'm, I'm kicking it around in the back of my head. Um, just since it's a terminal degree, feels like, you know, um, there's still this sense of like, well, you're never done. There's, you're, you're never, you can never know enough um, and even, you know, after getting a PhD, that's still true. But, um, to be honest with you, I just like always liked the idea of being Dr. Lovejoy. So I was like, <laughs> maybe I should, uh, get a PhD someday, but, um, yeah, I, I like to diversify a little bit. So I don't want to study the same subject that I did before, which is good and bad because a lot of, like you mentioned, employers, they, they like to see you capitalizing on investment. So if you've already, if you have a background in like finance, being a CFA, they'd like to see you doing that instead of like, oh no, I want to be an artist now, or I want to do this. And it's like, you could provide some really unique insights in that field and perhaps innovate in a, in a cool way, 
but for institutionalized capital, they might be a little bit more reticent to back that over the tried and true method of, you know, CFA year five is statistically more likely to provide this much value as year four, et cetera. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'd like to do something different just to cross pollinate. So I studied photography in undergrad, MBA, and then, uh, so I'd like to do something, maybe not business or art, maybe something in psychology, maybe something in, um, sustainability, um, maybe something in, uh, a new field that's not yet, uh, you know, with, with AI, we don't know, like things could really, um, open up. I know, um, there's, I, I'm in contact. I've taken some supplemental courses with the Mises Institute in, uh, in Auburn, Alabama, actually it's related to, I don't know if you've seen Austrian economics and things like that, you know, cancel the fed and all this type of stuff, uh, you know, anti-fiat currency and things like that. So they have some extreme views, but I find their economics uh, quite interesting. So I've taken some of their classes. One of the professors there um, is named Dr. Peter Klein, and he's also the head of one of the PhD programs at Baylor University here in Texas. I'm in Texas right now. So in Waco, and he's got a new program he's just launched focused on a PhD in entrepreneurial economics and or entrepreneurship. And it's really sort of the role of the entrepreneur in economic growth. Um, and, and he's got a, a pretty limited PhD program there, but I've been in touch with him. I think that's a pretty interesting program because it kind of mixes ex economics, but also entrepreneurship, which is a passion area of mine and perhaps for years as well. So that could be an interesting one. I know I have a friend as well doing a doctor of a bis business administration, DBA at Haskain in Calgary. Um, and that one is entirely practitioner based. So they don't want any of their DBAs to, to, they're not focused on academic papers once people finish a PhD. They want the DBAs to actually write books, become thought leaders, do podcasts, do broad broad mass media. Uh, so my friend Mike Prosey is doing that. And, uh, and he's also working at TransCanada cool. full-time as well. So he's quite busy. But So there is ways to meld, I think, career and um, higher education. But I don't know exactly what's the best fit for me right now. Well, best fit, keep doing what you're doing, but uh, keep an eye on the clock so you don't uh, forget to finish Yale. Yeah, true. Agreed. So what what are your, your future plans and aspirations? I mean, we touched on it a little bit regarding uh, academic, but uh, like what, what would you like? I mean, my goodness, you took six months and traveled South America by motorcycle. Um, you've started a few companies. Yeah, you successfully exited. Um, in many ways, you're a mentor. You're writing papers. But what's not done? Uh, what do you want to go to space? Like, what do you want to do in five years? Um, that's a good question. I would like to get married at some point and have a family. Um, I'm 32 next month. Uh, so I got maybe a couple years left there, but before that, Put your I contact would... details in the show notes. Exactly. Um, I thought perhaps it, and then the MBA program, I'd, I'd potentially find someone. It didn't, didn't work out that way, but, um, yeah, I think I would like to I think do you have to stay. You do, maybe. Maybe you need the full two years to... They call it Yale SOM, School of Management. They actually call it Yale School of Marriage, apparently. That's what they told me. Really? You had a lot of uh, couplings there? There's a couple, yeah. Apparently, there, every year there's a couple marriages that come out of it. So I wasn't as lucky this year, but maybe when I come back. Um, I would like to do a couple more deals. For me, my two areas of interest are software. I've never done a deal in software, so I'm hoping this deal comes together. And then also healthcare. So... I have this vision. I've told AJ about this. I, I want to create a franchise, uh, a brick and mortar um, set of locations where you can go, you can meet with an expert 
who will take your blood and take your biomarkers. And then every three months or six months, you can go back there to a friendly face. You can review your biomarkers. And whether you're 30, 40, 50, or 60, you can monitor your history over time and feel like you're getting healthier in a quantifiable way. And trying to, But trying to create a model of how that will work is difficult. So right now I'm focusing on models it's that like are- like H&R block for health. Exactly. Like. That's the idea, but it's a lot harder than it sounds. There's also a lot of regulatory related- Sounds plenty hard. It's extremely difficult. So I've been thinking about it for a while. I was trying to do it during Yale, but I just don't think the market's ready there yet. So okay. at some point in the next couple of years, I'd love to, to do that. And finally, I'd love to do another motorcycle trip. It's been almost 10 years since my trip to Latin America. I would love to do Africa. Wow. Cape Town to Cairo. <laughs> I hope you document that. I'd love to do that before I'm married. So I don't have much time left. Okay. Before you graduate Yale. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff. So we'll see. But I'd love to do that at some point. Well, I better let you go get back at it. Well, let me know if you want to join anything because I'm, I'm always, yeah, you seem very adventurous. I'd love to. I am. <laughs> yeah. So Break the Formula is your podcast? Yep. So YouTube. Uh, break the formula. We've got one episode right now posted in the new year. We've got two more that have been filmed and will be posted in the next couple of weeks. Nice. Yeah. Is there anywhere else you'd like to point us? Uh, Instagram, nate.btf. So it's nate.breaktheformula basically. Um, what else we got? My LinkedIn, so Nate Schantz. Uh, so linkedin.com slash nate-shantz. You can follow me there. Yeah, those are sort of the two main things I'd say. I'll put them in the show notes as well, but in case people are driving or something and they hear this, hopefully they can uh, remember that. And yeah, it's a real pleasure talking to you. I could talk to you for another hour. Maybe we could do a part two at some point. Love to. But uh, thanks for the time. Thanks, David.